As we move into chapter 5 of um, Hebrews, it helps us, chapter 5 helps us to understand exactly what it was going to take for Christ to rescue not only the, the creation, the, the world, to rescue the world from the mess that it was in because of sin, but also what it would take to rescue both you and I. But in some senses, it's a strange chapter. Strange in the sense that it seems to, to jump from, from one subject or theme to a, a completely different one without any sort of warning or, or, or introduction. But hopefully as we make our way through it, we will see that it, it isn't simply a rambling of, of theological ideas or, or jargon, but that when we take it separate parts and when combined, we'll see that it provides a coherent whole. And the author, as has been the case through everything that he has written so far and what we have read and studied, takes us back to the original Hebrew scriptures. And chapter 5 opens by, uh, by pointing the reader, pointing ourselves to this historical order of the priesthood, the priesthood which was formed under Aaron as the first priests. We read about it in, uh, in Exodus and Leviticus in those first books of the Old Testament. And the ancient, and it was referred to as the Levitical priesthood, this ancient priesthood, which can be traced right back to Aaron as the first priest, uh, the priesthood was responsible for carrying out the means by which the people of God could seek atonement or forgiveness for their sins through the act of sacrifice and sacrificial ministry. And the most important responsibility of the high priest was to conduct the service of the day of atonement. And this was the 10th day of the seventh month of each year. And then we, we read there something about the day of atonement. The proper sacrifices was a bull and a ram for the high priest and his family and two goats and a ram for the people. He did what he had to do for himself and his family. One goat was killed and one goat was spared for a purpose. It became this, this, the scapegoat, basically. And that was symbolic of the sin leaving and departing from the people. And after making sacrifice for first his own sins and the sins of the nation, he would enter the, the holy place um, uh, of the temple, which would look something like this. He would enter the holy place, bringing with him the blood of the sacrificed animals. He would then sprinkle uh, the blood on the mercy seat or God's throne, as it was also known. And in that gold box, uh, just in front of the, the priest, that was where they would have held the, the Ten Commandments, which were given to Moses um, on, on the mountain. And so the purpose of doing all this was to make atonement or to seek forgiveness for himself and the people for all their sins which were committed uh, during the year that had just ended. And it is this um, specific role and uh, particular service that the author of Hebrews is now comparing to the role of Jesus as the great high priest. But there are some significant differences to keep in mind. The Old Testament priest, and, and this is what he would have looked like, and it's described in great detail in the Old Testament. The Old Testament priest was, of course, a man. 
He was a man, flesh and blood like you and I. He too would sin and, and he therefore needed to seek atonement for his sins before he could seek atonement for the sins of the people. And as a man, he understood. He understood the sins and, and the temptations that mankind faced. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that the priest, therefore, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. And part of the role of the priest was to be both sympathetic and compassionate towards the faults and the feelings of the people. If, if he were, were ever tempted in any way to pronounce harsh judgments or, or unrealistic demands on the people because of their actions, so if he was to cast judgment on others because of their sins, he would remember that he too was just as prone to the, the same faults and feelings, the same sins as all the rest. And of course, he would have himself have fallen into temptation and sin. But what Hebrews shows us and reminds us is that Christ is far greater than the priests of old. Not only does his compassion far exceed the compassion of any priest, but he was without sin. He did not have to make atonement for his sins because Christ did not sin once, not even once in thought or action or deed. But Christ was tempted. He was tempted. He was tempted in his 40 days of wilderness um, in, the, in the desert after he was baptized and Satan tempted him. Now some people have argued and say that, well, it was easy for Jesus they have said that it was, it was easy for Jesus not to sin because, well, he was the son of God. He couldn't sin because he was without sin. And their arguments can lead on to them claiming that Jesus cannot fully understand the temptation that we face because our world today, the world today, is very different to the world when Jesus walked it in the flesh. For example, um, people argue that Jesus could never have experienced the, the specific temptations relating to women. Or to married people, he couldn't have experienced the temptations of the elderly or those living in a time of, of economic crisis or indeed ourselves living in a time of, of great technological advances and the internet and all the temptations that that brings. And yes, it's hard to argue against this position because in many senses it is true. But ultimately, ultimately Christ can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and knows what it is to face temptation because the temptations that he faced are greater than anything that you and I will ever face. And they are greater because of who he is. They are greater because he is the son of God. Every waking moment of Christ's life must have been lived in the awareness that he was the son of God every waking moment. And of course, with being the son of God comes with it a considerable level of interest. And we see this in the scriptures. People flock to, to, to Christ in their thousands. They then continue to follow him in their thousands. And we can just begin to think of the temptations of pride or, or of self-esteem that, that, that Christ must have experienced. You know, I would have loved that and hundreds of thousands of people flocking to hear me speak. 
And the ultimate test for Jesus came as he, as he was approaching the, the hour of his appointed time. He knew what was before him. He may have been tempted to run back to the Father, to give up on mankind, but instead he chose not to sin and to obey God the Father. One author puts it this way, T.H. Robinson. His, that's Christ, his whole life was one of temptation. Christ's whole life was one of temptation. The very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known and the very richness of his human nature exposed him and all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. So therefore we can come to the conclusion that no one has experienced temptation, despair, isolation or utter darkness like Christ the Lord has. Therefore we can be assured that when we experience these same things, that he knows what we're going through. He knows what we're going through. He knows what you are going through. Because he knows what we experience, because he has been there, what better thing can you or I do but to follow his example? And one such example comes through what we read in verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And this is very much where the point where some people, they get to chapter 5 of Hebrews and they stop. They don't want to go any further. But before we go running off and, and say that we're done, like most people do, uh, when they reach this part, specifically this part about Melchizedek, let's just take a few moments to understand what the author is saying about Christ's life of prayer. The author is recalling that point when Jesus is praying. And he is praying in total anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. So much so that his sweat turns to, turn, turns to blood. The, 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 the strain and the pressure. And there is a, there is a, um, um, a technical term for it. The, the, the word uh, escapes me at the minute. But what Christ experienced. And there we read, it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place, place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And whenever we read that, we come to the conclusion or could come to the conclusion that Jesus was asking the Father if there was any other way, any other way to save mankind other than death, let it be so. We could come to that conclusion, but is that accurate? Because if that were the case, then God didn't answer Christ's prayer. Christ had spoken of his death. He understood the necessity of it. That it was the will of God and his life was bound up in fulfilling that will. Yet we read in verse 7 of chapter 5 of Hebrews, With loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard 
because of his reverent submission. Jesus prayed. He said, um, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Christ was praying that he wouldn't have to, to do this. So we read in chapter, verse 7 of chapter 5, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, he was heard because of his reverent submission. And by saying that his prayer was heard, the author is showing that his prayer was in fact answered. That prayer that he prayed in Gethsemane was answered. So we have to go back to Gethsemane and look again at what Christ is really praying for. And what he is praying for is not to be saved from death, Okay, and this is very, these are two very different things. Not to be saved from death, but to be saved out of death. He was praying for resurrection from the dead. And God answered that prayer. And it is because he has experienced death, the ultimate end of all suffering, that he sympathizes with us in our suffering. And when we suffer, or when, other one, other, when loved ones suffer, we can be quick to, to, to ask God, why, why, why me? And we can become angry with God either through, through the suffering that we experience or through watching a loved one suffer. We can and we, we should become angry at sin and suffering. And the deepest expression of human suffering is always found in the agony of loss by death. Through the separation of our loved ones. Timothy Keller uh, uh, and his uh, Presbyterian uh, pastor in America in his book Walking with God Through Suffering talks a lot about this and here's some of the things that he says. On the cross he, that's Jesus, was forsaken by his father. This final experience ultimately unfathomable to us means infinite cosmic agony beyond the knowledge of any of us on earth. For the ultimate suffering is the loss of love. And this was the loss of an eternal, perfect love. There is nothing more difficult than the disruption and loss of family relationships. But we see that God knows what it is like to suffer. And personally suffered the disruption of his own family, the Trinity, by the immensity of his own wrath against sin. So the Son of God who is our great high priest, took upon himself our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved. And of course, part of that punishment is being cut off from the Father for all eternity. And through the experience of the cross, God the Father endured our an agony, an agony, our agony. He took upon himself the, the greatest pain that has been or ever will be born in all of history. And he took it upon himself because he loves you and he loves me. He loves us. And whenever we suffer, whatever that may look like, God is there with us suffering the same pain, the same agony. Therefore, as we pray, as we seek solitude in him, we will find it. And ultimately, we will be saved out of death for Christ has already died that death for us. Finally, and very quickly this morning, we jump, we jump, we're kind of jumping about now, and we jump again in the concluding verses to something which, which just seems completely out of place to what has gone before. The author begins to tell his recipients that there is much more that, that they must know um, above and beyond this, but it's hard to explain to them because 
What I like to say in country terms, they were a bit thick. It reminds me of how, um, and if he said it to me once, he said it to me a hundred times, my dad used to say to me, son, he said, don't ever let anyone tell you you're stupid. You're not stupid. You might be thick, but you're not stupid. Now, I think I understood what he meant. There is a difference. And the author here speaks of how his audience are slow to learn. They are like babies. He says that though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. He's practically saying that there is, there's, no point, there's no point in trying to explain the order of Melchizedek to them because they couldn't understand it anyway. And that's how these two sec- sections are connected. And the reason that they couldn't understand it isn't because they don't have the mental capacity to do so. They're not stupid. But it's because they've become lazy. Another way of translating slow to learn is dull of hearing. The Greek equivalent of this, uh, of this is being sluggish or, or slothful, lazy. You remember how when we, we first looked at Hebrews, the author presented us with the, the image of a, of a boat, of a boat drifting off without an anchor, and that his recipients were very close to doing the same thing with their faith of drifting away from God. And the surest way for us to determine if we are going backwards in our faith is when we experience a dullness to the things of God. For example, the Bible becomes dull. The preaching becomes dull. Anything of a, of a spiritual manner is quite simply dull. But the problem doesn't lie in the things of God or in the preacher, thank goodness. Well, not always anyway, but the problem lies in the believers themselves. And when we become dull, we also become ineffective to God. So the challenge for us is let us not fall into the apathy that these first readers did. Let us not simply accept the basic gospel truths of God's word and then leave it there. But let us sharpen our minds. Let us ponder and explore the things of God. Let us endure suffering as a means of of deepening our relationship and fellowship with God. And let us pray as Christ did. Pray that prayer, thy will be done. And when we do that and sincerely allow his will to to overrule our lives, he will do awesome things. He will do awesome things in and through us to the glory of his name. Let us pray. God, give us ears to hear that we would not be dull of hearing, that we would hear your word and your voice spoken to us. That you are Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And we thank you that you are with us even now. We thank you that you are our high priest. We thank you that we do not have to to go to a confession and to confess to a a, a man that he would intercede for us. That that we we can pray directly to you because you are the one who has borne our sin upon the cross. And that you hear us when we pray. And that you love us so much, hence why you would die for us. And Lord, sometimes we, there's a reluctance to come to you because we don't like to surrender. We don't want to, to give up our sin and follow you. Lord, break those lies and barriers within us. That we would follow you. That we would trust you. That you would become our high priest. The only one who can forgive us for our sins. So that that day when you will return... What a day of rejoicing that will be. 
because we will be judged not on our own merit, but on your merit. And you are the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. We thank you that we can sing those words at this time. Joy to the world. The Lord is come and is coming once again. Lord, hear our prayer for it is in Christ.